Hello, and welcome to another episode of the In Awe and Wonder podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Hamilton. So we're in the middle of a streak, I guess you could call it, of looking at some of the Psalms. I started in the fourth book of the Psalms with Psalm 90. And we are up to today looking at Psalm 95. The Psalms from 93 through 100 have a theme running through them about how God is king. So that is one of our focuses, as well as seeing what attributes of God that we see in these Psalms, and just to worship and praise God for who he is and what he has done. We see some of his works mentioned in these Psalms. And there are some other historical or cultural or other tidbits that we can find in these Psalms too. And we also see how these Psalms tie into the narrative of the whole entire Bible of the creation, fall, redemption story that is woven throughout the entire scripture. So today is Psalm 95. And overall, this psalm calls us as believers to respond in two ways to God, and that is as creator and as king. Here is Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right, so... In verse 1, the psalm starts with, let us. And it also starts, verse 2, with, let us. And that is an indicator that a worship leader, or back when it was written, probably a priest, was calling a congregation together to worship. Down in verse 3, it says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And we see that statement several places in the psalms. And there are probably a few other references to gods with a little g in other parts of scripture. And it can cause people to pause and kind of question like, gods, are there other gods? Um, But no, uh, we are monotheists, meaning that we worship one god. We recognize there's only one god. But the reference there is to the gods of mythology that were accepted and worshipped during those times. The nations around Israel would worship different gods of their countries or their territories or for different purposes. So that verse is saying that our God is the one true God and he is God above any other thing that a human could conceive to think to worship. 
above their idols and their made-up gods. And our God is king over all. So then verses 6 through 8 calls believers to submit to God, our creator and king. And that is by the words worship, bow down, kneel, and do not harden your hearts. So we give him the worship and submit to him out of recognition that he is the one true God. And we are to follow him, worship him, and obey him. In verse 8, we had the names of two places, Meribah and Massa. And those two names can be, I guess, translated quarreling and testing. They reflect Israel's attitude toward God during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt and Moses was guiding them back to the promised land and they were a hard-hearted, stiff-necked, rebellious people. And we see the names of Mirabah and Massa in the accounts um, in Exodus chapter 17 verses 1 through 7. And in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13, these give us accounts, two accounts of what happened at Mirabah and Massa. So Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7 says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses And said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And then over to Numbers 20 verses 1 through 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So that was the account of what happened there at Meribah and Massa. And the consequences then were the people of that generation were led around in the wilderness for a total of 40 years until that generation died off. Okay, moving to verse 9 seems to switch the perspective of who is speaking. So it goes from like the priest or worship leader calling the congregation to worship at the beginning of the psalm, and then it seems to switch to God speaking directly to the people. So there was a call in verse 8 to not harden your hearts as the people did in the wilderness in the accounts that I just read. And then verse 9, starting there, it says, When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Okay, the me and the my there is God. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. So God felt wrath from what happened there in the wilderness and restated his consequence to them is that they did not get to enter the promised land, which was another way of saying his rest. And then also about not entering his rest in verse 11, that whole idea of God's rest and entering the Sabbath rest is also referenced in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 7. And this gets into a lot of other theological topics, which I am not qualified to go into. I might mention some uh, after I read it, but I have done an in-depth study of Hebrews, and I do understand what it is saying to us as believers but it is too large and encompassing of a thing to try to explain in a shorter podcast episode. But suffice it to say that my study Bible, the uh, Reformation Study Bible, does note on that phrase that professing Christians must heed God's word or they will not enter God's eternal rest. And so um, also combined with the passage in Hebrews and the notes that it has for that, this rest is also pointing forward to us as believers, you know, today from eternity past on through until we come to the new heavens and new earth to live eternally with God forever. So it's pointing forward to our glorification with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And so essentially, the call to not be hard-hearted and stiff-necked and rebellious can also be applied to ourselves. And that's just a very simplified, like, nutshell version of what this is trying to say. As I said, it does dig deeper than I have the time or ability to really dig into. Okay, so I'm going to read to you now Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, and I'm going to extend that through verse 13 to finish that section and that whole thought. But uh, yeah, we'll see sections of Psalm 95 quoted here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, so that concludes the section in Hebrews that it would cross-reference. You probably heard lots of theological issues talked about in that section. One of those kind of obvious ones is the perseverance of the saints. Pretty much uh, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 is sometimes taken to think the opposite of the perseverance of the saints meaning that, that God is saying here that it's possible for believers to lose their salvation. Because verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The fact that the writer of Hebrews is saying brothers makes it sound like he's talking to other Christians, other believers, and warning them to check their belief 
make sure they're not evil and they're not unbelieving, where that could lead them to fall away from the living God. So as usual, my study Bible does clarify some things that the writer of Hebrews here is addressing his audience as brothers because he is simply addressing them based on their profession of faith. Because there can be people who profess to be Christians, but they aren't truly regenerated. They could be part of the church, but not be regenerated. But that is not for us to know. We don't know people's hearts or whether they are going to come to faith at some point in their lives. And so we cannot distinguish whether someone is truly saved or not. Now, yes, there are ways to look at the fruit people produce to try to figure that out. But again, everybody is at different places on their sanctification journey, and you just don't know for 100% sure. So uh, we shouldn't be presumptuous on that. So the writer of Hebrews is just addressing them all as brothers. But the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does give us assurance of our salvation. That a person who professes faith in the finished works of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit testifying within them and changing them, sanctifying them, you know, uh, giving them interest in the things of God, of studying the word, praying, attending church with other believers, fellowshipping, that type of thing, including the fruit of the Spirit, of course, would be indicators that someone is regenerate, that they are saved. They are a child of God. So it is good to sometimes examine yourself, but to sit around and worry and fret over your assurance. I understand, you know, everyone having doubts and questions and, and things, and especially as they're growing along their journey, that's normal. But, you know, I, I don't think it's a good thing to sit around worrying about assurance. So basically, the writer of Hebrews is addressing everyone that he's writing to as brothers, but there might be some of them who are not truly regenerate and saved. Okay, so for those people, he is warning against the evil, unbelieving heart. Or in the psalm that we read, against the hard-heartedness. Okay, saying today, if you hear my voice, or if you hear his voice, God's voice, don't be hard-hearted. You know, respond to it. And those who are sinners that are just like wallowing in their sin, um, verse 13 talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Those people are just deceived. They're blinded. They're unaware. It talks about that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that this deceitfulness of sin can just cause more and more hardening. I think most people can attest to the fact that when you sin once, it's only easier to sin again and to keep on going. So how much more is that true for unbelievers? And then we have the whole idea of the rest and the Sabbath that enters this passage and discussion. So as I said, for us in modern times, we can look ahead to that rest pointing to our future in glory with Jesus. But there is the practical application of resting in Jesus' completed finished work by his perfect life being imputed to us 
his righteousness to us, and he paid for the penalty and wrath of our sins that we deserved. He took that upon himself. So we can rest in his life, death, and resurrection that was his works for us so that we are his bride. We are being conformed more and more to his image day by day. So as believers, we have rest and assurance in that, that we don't need to keep striving to do good works to try to make it into heaven or to be a good enough person. And just to read one other note here from my study Bible about this. This note is on chapter 4, verse 2, where the good news came to us. That verse says, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the note says, The good news of deliverance and God's love that Israel heard at Sinai was not as clearly revealed or understood as the salvation spoken now through the Lord. But it would have been of value to the hearers, ushering them into God's rest if they had combined it with faith. This is further evidence that the majority of the wilderness generation did not have true saving faith. Okay, so at Sinai, we remember that that's where Israel was given the Ten Commandments. And many of them were simply focused on the works of the law and relying on following those laws to be able to come to the promised land. And in modern day times, it would be people trying to, like I said, do works to get into heaven. But that is no good. We are saved by faith alone. And so this is showing even the believers before Jesus came and was crucified and resurrected, that they still had to have faith. It was faith in the future coming Messiah. They did not have, obviously, the whole clear picture, but they did have the promise of a Messiah to have faith in. So basically, the hearers of the law needed to also have faith in the coming Messiah. And now we have a much clearer picture of Jesus's works that he did for us. And we have faith that they were done on our behalf and for us. And that we can now rest in our salvation and our relationship. And the Holy Spirit is in us and sanctifying us. So then this psalm starts out praising God as creator and as king, and then gives a warning not to be hard-hearted like the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, hearing and knowing the law, trying to do the law, but not having the faith that goes along with that. So the attributes of God that we see in this psalm, I wrote down, he is the rock, he's our savior, He is great and mighty. He is king above all. He is creator and maker. He is powerful. He is patient. He is omniscient. He has wrath. He is just and righteous. And he is judge. So I hope that this brief overview of this psalm was encouraging and helpful to you. Thanks for listening. Next time, we will talk about Psalm 96. This podcast is part of the Christian Podcast community. You can find them at podcasts.strivingforeternity.org. My blog is at www.kristen-hamilton.com. 
keep reading your Bible. <laughs>